0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. ETW, void, or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is brought to you by Hulu Plus. Watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere with Hulu Plus. On your TV or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. Shows like Cosmos, Modern Family, The Mindy Project, and more. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com slash fighting. That's HuluPlus.com slash fighting. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 25th. The Should I Even Be a Parent edition? I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of harry five. Sam, three, and Wally, one.
1: I'm Dan Kois. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Harper, who is seven, and Lyra, who is nine. My fail is that last episode I said Harper was six, but she's (laughs) seven.
2: Hi, Allison. Hey. uh, Today, we'll be joined by Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, to talk about football, specifically, should you let your kids play, and then to have kids or not to have kids. And when to have them, Dan and I will talk about parenting ambivalence, plus parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call about strong female protagonists in children's books. First, reminders, a few reminders. Please subscribe to Mom and Dad are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and please keep spreading the word. I know we say this every episode, and you probably are just sort of tuning out as I'm saying it, but we really, really mean it. The more listeners we get, the better the show will be. Also, don't tune out. Tune in. Please sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's great membership plan, where you get special Slate Plus-only podcasts. Uh, Currently, Phil Plate is hosting one on Doctor Who. Extra podcast segments, first dibs on tickets to live podcasts. And who knows, maybe Dan and I will even do a live show one day if more of you join Slate Plus. On to triumphs and fails. Dan, you want to go first?
1: Yeah. All right.
2: Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. There's something you should listen to. Hi, this
3: is Alia from Arlington, Virginia, calling for the Mom and Dad are Fighting podcast. I am Dan's wife. I'm a big fan, but I do need to correct the record. Uh, Dan, you talked about a triumph of getting Harper to put you to bed, how she tucked you in and read you a book and then went off to bed without stalling. What you don't know is that about 10 minutes later, Harper came downstairs to where I was working on the computer and told me that there was a red bug crawling around the room and could I please come upstairs and deal with it? So your triumph is perhaps a little less triumphant than you thought. Your triumph of going to sleep at 9 p.m., however, remains intact. Keep up the great work.
2: But <laughs> well,
1: you're a fraud, Dan. Well, mom and dad are fighting regrets there. <laughs> uh, all right, well, in light of that triumph that I thought was a triumph but was slightly less of a triumph than I thought it was, uh, maybe my triumph this week should actually be Alia's triumph, So here's uh, Alia's triumph this week. Uh, This has been the month that Lyra, um, our older daughter, really wanted to know about puberty. She has really started asking a lot of questions about puberty. She's had a lot of questions about girls in her class and whether they will start wearing bras soon, whether she will start wearing a bra soon. Um, And Alia's triumph is that she totally nailed that conversation this week, she did a totally great job. Um, she thought about Lyra a lot, and she thought about how Lyra processes information. She did a bunch of research and talked to a bunch of friends and people at school to find a book that would um, really help Lyra and teach her some lessons and open up the door. And then, after Lyra read the book, she sat down with her and had a very earnest and very honest conversation. Um, and I was really, really impressed with both of them. Actually, um, I talked to Lyra too. I did not like delegate this to alia but my conversation was sort of more a follow-up alia lyra really wanted to talk to alia about it um when she talked to me it was more like she was trying out some of her new data on me like daddy you get hair in your armpits and by your vagina it helps that lyra is not easily embarrassed um the book by the way that uh, that alia used was the karen feeding of you the body book for younger girls it is published allison no lie by american girl the american girl company uh but it is super straightforward and really good um and i would actually really recommend it the only thing i didn't love about it is that it's like a little bit heteronormative like it has this line in it that's like you will start to feel romantic feelings toward boys and we were like also or girls you never know who knows um But Ali reminded me that in 2005, uh, the American Girl company was boycotted by the American Family Association for its support of a foundation that, among other things, promotes gay rights. And American Girl ignored them and doubled down and gave them more money. So I'm going to let it slide.
2: Uh, did she ask you, did she ask Alia, like, did she use the word puberty? She's like, "What? what's this I hear yes. about puberty? Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Oh, yeah.
1: She's been hearing a lot about puberty in school um, and has been getting information and misinformation from older girls. And so she just was like, I want to know more about puberty. What is this thing? <laughs> okay. Uh,
2: good job, Alia. Now, our next triumph and fail is going to come from Mike Pesca of The Gist. Does that, are you only Mike Pesca of The Gist, no lo- not just
0: Mike Pesca? I'm just of the gist. Of the gist. Um, okay. Of the gist. So I want to know about the American Girl puberty book, though. What, did they did they have a puberty book for the American Girl doll from 1910 Cincinnati and from 1890 on the American Prairie? Different. Yeah, it really uh, lays out
1: their. They're different <laughs> options and uh, how, how it doesn't really matter what happens to them as they'll be having babies by the time they're 12 <laughs> to help out on the farm.
0: But, you know, they'll be plucky underdogs. Right. Uh, my parenting triumph of uh, the week or this is really the culmination of a parenting initiative I started – When shaking hands, look the person in the eye and therefore be able to answer the question, what color were their eyes? And because I emphasize this so often, first days of school, Emmett, my five-year-old, looks, this is how he introduces himself to someone. Hi, I'm Emmett. Turns around to me blue <laughs> but it really works so because because triumph. the oh shake their hand and then he's looking all over the place that's worse than nothing right the you need the eye contact with the handshake are you talking about with with
2: with peers everyone shake everybody's hands
0: yes <laughs> i like that You should
1: definitely tell him that as he becomes more advanced at it, he should then hold that eye contact for about three seconds longer (laughs) than is comfortable. Yeah. Because then he'll always have the upper hand in any interaction.
0: Right. And also do the two-handed handshake if he wants to ask for their vote in the upcoming election.
1: Yeah. Allison, how about you?
2: Okay. Two triumphs. Come to me for the fail. I feel like all my fails sort of follow a similar pattern, which is somewhat related to me not opening... Mail that Dan loves, thinks is hilarious. Oh God. I know, it's another one of those. I'm sorry. But on Sunday, we were sort of cleaning up a little around the house, and I found these envelopes that I had never opened, and they were from Harry's. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know. <laughs> sorry. Uh, they were from Harry's last day of kindergarten, which was in June, and there was a big packet that said, Welcome to first grade. That. <laughs> I think it's a little crazy to send that home in June and not to put it in the mail in September or August, but I wouldn't have opened it no matter when it came, probably. <laughs> Asking parents to make a collage with family photos for the first day of school to write a letter to the teacher with our child's strengths and weaknesses and anything that we think they should, <laughs> the teacher should know. So... I hadn't done any of those things. I did write the letter eventually and admitted that Harry's biggest uh, weakness is me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there you go. And it, you know what? He he was welcomed to first grade on the first day. Yep. Anyway, he was fine. Right.
1: I mean, they didn't bar the doors. Right. If right. If it makes
0: yeah. you feel better, I too have a son in the public schools, and he was so we were on that Alexander Graham Bell report like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> he bought a fake antique phone. He wrote poems. They didn't even look at it. I know. They don't even care.
2: I know. But it it is a problem. It's also why we got our car booted. But that's for another podcast, for Car Talk. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay.
2: So, on to our first topic, football. With all the terrible news out of the NFL this past few weeks, one story that didn't get as much attention is that the NFL finally acknowledged that one-third of its players will suffer brain trauma. Knowing the risks, should parents allow their kids to play football in junior high and high school? Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, is here to tell us. Mike. Hey.
0: Hey, how you doing?
2: <laughs> so you have two sons. Yeah. They're very good at shaking hands. If they want to play football, what will you say?
0: Yeah. I well first I'd have a conversation with their mother and People have had objections to playing football before we knew anything about brain trauma, and they were things like you break your bones. And when I played football in middle school, I had the most horrific knee injury my coach has ever seen. And when I went to my high school reunion, everyone was like, oh, my God, that was the craziest injury I ever saw. So, yeah, you can get hurt in lots of ways that have nothing to do with your brain and your soul, and therefore, you know, it's a serious conversation to have. But I would allow the kids to play football. I don't know too many of my cohort who would. Only if they're into it. I think my younger son is sort of... Of large and physical. My older son is maybe maybe more of a rock climber, but maybe you want to play football. And then I'd have this rule. If you get one concussion, you're shut down for the season. And if you get to a second concussion, you're shut down for the rest of your football life.
2: Do you always know though when they have a it's not like you would always know if they had a concussion? Well, you
0: have to be cognizant of it, and I think coaches are more aware of what the signs of a concussion are, especially with young kids. And you know, I'd presumably be going to every game um and uh, we'd have professionals at most practices and so yeah, I think if a kid is out or dizzy or seeing stars, and you'd have to tell them what that means, and I think kids will tell you. Now, I question. Okay, but hold yeah. on.
1: Let's. Mm-hmm. I wanna. I wanna follow up on that a little bit because you hope that there will be professionals on the sideline, and maybe your school is really great about this. Uh, but there have been recommendations made to every Pee Wee Pop Warner middle school, high school football team that you should have a, a trained concussion expert on the sideline who's not a coach. Um, but how that isn't happening, I, I would imagine, in most schools. And so how do you make sure that someone is there in practice? What can you do as a parent to make sure that your school has someone in practice keeping an eye on kids to see if they get concussion?
0: Well, actually, I think it's unreasonable for a trained neurologist or someone with uh, real uh, medical training in the neurosciences to be there. But I do think that if coaching Coaches are aware of it and are on the right side of this issue. And I think that if there's good education about what the symptoms are and what should be done, I mean, we hear horror stories and they're usually based on the football we watch, professional football, college football, kids the players really wanting to be in, maybe covering up the symptoms of a concussion, maybe the power apparatus not exactly on the side of the player, you know, wanting to to do what's best for the team, and in the case of the professionals, and the case of college, the uh, money-making apparatus thereof, I think on the youth level, for so long, and here's why I'm a little optimistic, or more optimistic than the people who say this will be the death knell of football, we've known nothing about it for so long, we've done nothing about it for so long, that's Largely the NFL's fault, where they tried they let a rheumatologist head their concussion committee. So I look at something like um, water breaks, where when I was young, and actually this was changing a little bit then, but it was seen as tough not to give the kids water, and that just totally changed. There was a 180 on that, kids were dropping on the football field, kids were dying, and now there are no coaches that I know of who think that that is... That is has anything to do with toughness. So people, football coaches, you hear the horror stories, but most youth coaches that I have come across are great people who want to help kids and use sport as a way to do that, as opposed to want to play sport and use kids as fodder. There are exceptions, but I think that especially with young kids, and I don't expect my kids to go on to college or the pros where a lifetime of hits and bigger competition and force equals mass times acceleration, all that comes into play to really um, add up to these concussion and dementia issues. I don't expect that to happen, but I think it's possible to manage this and to be aware of it and to be really strict about what the consequences are of a concussion at the youth level. I think that is possible.
1: Mike, what are you going to do – when are you going to let your kids play tackle? What Uh, age do you think is the right age to play tackle football with helmets?
0: All right. Well, if we're talking about non-tackle football, flag football, there's no – that's not even part of this discussion. Of course, I'd let them – my oldest son does that right now. It's like like ultimate frisbee. It has nothing to do with football. There are no hits. You know, I played it when I was 9 or 10. I was a big kid, and I've read that there's no reason to allow – earlier than thirteen year olds to play. Now there's some debate about this. I mean honest debate. Robert Cantu, who's a neurologist, you know, talks about portions of the brain and definitely neck muscles are less developed. But there are other really good neurologists and brain experts who are on who are, you know do do research that indicts the NFL. So they're on nobody's payroll. They're just in the name of science. You say that, you know, I think that it's fine for a twelve year old to play. So I would start thinking about it around, you know, sixth grade. What about this movement for heads up tackling? It doesn't do much. I mean, it's better than bad tackling, but I think that this is uh, uh, a wait. Let, let's just let's describe what it is. What that yeah, is. Okay, is. so yeah. so. There was a time when the concussion issue was blamed on bad tackling, which is if you go in with the crown of your head or your neck um, bent so it's down and you're not looking at what you're hitting. And the old school coaches would say you should always look at what you hit. This does not solve the problem. Of course, if you hit someone with the crown of your head or some where you're not looking at what you're hitting, it absolutely could lead to uh, horrible consequences, including paralysis. So there is a better way to tackle, which is to look at someone who you're hitting, but that does not solve the problem. And I think that the NFL has this heads-up tackling program, and what they're trying to imply with this program is that there is a way to make football safe, and that is not true. And it's not only that the tackling, even if you do it properly, you know, football, the plays, they come at weird angles. You could be looking at a guy, and then some other guy hits you on the back of the head when you don't expect it, or what starts off as heads-up, you know, your body contorts and it becomes something different. There is no safe way to play. There are safer ways to do it, and I would certainly, you know, I would know that uh, the kids would be taught the right way to do it. And the research shows that that those big hits obviously make a difference and can have
1: catastrophic effects in in a single shot. Yeah. But the damage comes. The real damage to most players comes through the hundreds or thousands of micro impacts that are just part of playing football. Right, that happen on every block, on every rush, that happen on every play.
0: Right, bunches of sub-concussive hits that, when they put monitors inside helmets, little tiny car collisions that are happening all the time. The cumulative effect we've seen with these uh, professional players who have dementia, ALS, which also has been shown to have a uh, relationship to all these hits. Although, you know, there are probably a lot of ev- a lot of sports where they have. Really measured it as much, and it wouldn't shock me if, like you know, BMX racing or something where you're being jostled or jarred doesn't give you a justification for knowingly putting your uh, son in the in the in the um, in the bullseye in, in danger. Yeah, it doesn't knowingly justify you putting your son in the line of danger, the fact that others do it too, but I think that uh, there's just so much research that hasn't been done. Whenever I say this, by the way, someone accuses me of being like a climate denialist, but there really hasn't been research. That's not why I'm saying, therefore, everything that they're saying about the dangers of football is are wrong. I think just about everything they're saying about the dangers of football are right. But I do think football, more than a lot of other sports, for a certain kind of kid is great and can be great. It was my favorite sport and I heard John Dickerson talk about it being his favorite sport and every culture, especially with young men, has a bodies crashing into each other sport. There's a lot of evidence that rugby's a bit safer than football, but here in America we evolved with football and not rugby and especially for the kind of kid I was, which was the large strong kid who wasn't fast and had very bad manual dexterity. You know, how's my strength going to show itself in other sports? Could I swing a bat hard? I could, but that doesn't mean I could connect with the ball and run fast afterwards so football where I played line half of the offensive positions never touch a ball it's pretty much about just the physical contact of smashing into each other I mean it might not seem exalted but that could be a good thing for kids especially if you channel that in the context of a team right you could argue wrestling is a sport with a lot of physical contact, contact that's an individual sport so if you add up the, the, the body aspect the physicality. I do think there is a value to physical toughness, not as much as a value as you know the NFL announcers would have you believe, but I do think there is a value to that. I do think there is a value to getting through discomfort, not pain, but getting through some physical discomfort. I mean, and and then the team aspect. Football has its merits.
2: Dan, you don't really get to answer this question because. Because girls don't play football, and we, that can that could be an entire other topic of this podcast. Uh, some girls do, but most girls don't. Um, but there are certainly experts that have concerns uh, about another incredibly popular sport for kids, soccer. There are people who say that kids shouldn't be heading the ball um, until they're 14. Do your, I don't know if your girls play soccer, but would you have concerns about that?
1: Uh, I, I, my kids do play soccer. I do have concerns about it. I don't want them to head, and in fact, in their league heading is not currently allowed, although they're not at the age where that's even really an option for most kids. But yes, I I think the heading is a really bad idea for, uh, for kids who have not developed really well. And also, soccer, it tears a lot of ACLs. I mean, every, basically, every girl's sport tears a lot of ACLs. Girls just go down with ACL tears, basically, no matter what sport they play. And I agree with a lot of Mike's thoughts that there are a lot of benefits to sports, But so I want to know from you, Allison, are you convinced? Would you let Wally play football?
2: It's funny that you say Wally because he's definitely the only one who would be able to. The other are very uncoordinated. You know, I can skirt this, and <laughs> because we live in New York City where football is not much of a sport, but I think my answer is no <laughs> uh, right now. I mean, I I see I hear everything that Mike's saying, but basically what you're saying is, yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah, it's going to do these things, and yet there are these other factors outweigh that.
0: Well, I don't I think, think it will necessarily do these things. I, uh, the the next could sense. yeah, it could sure, yeah,
2: sure. and there plenty it of risks how much that you take really with your watched. children, right? I, yeah, it's very hard to explain, uh, to answer in the hypothetical, but I guess everything that I've read and everything that Mike has just said just now, even though he's coming down on the other side of it, would lead me to probably discourage it. At a certain point, you know, it wouldn't be my call, but... I don't think I'd encourage it. That's for sure.
1: I mean, if I had boys, I would definitely say no. I would say absolutely not. Not even in high school. If, when you go to college, if you want to play football, go for it.
2: <laughs> just right at you. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I
0: mean, yeah sure, it. Yes, if you want to start at Notre Dame, be my guest, having never <laughs> thrown a ball before. <laughs> but do you think that there is a value to toughness, physical toughness, even dealing with discomfort. Sure, but, yes.
1: but there are a million ways to develop yeah. that that do not involve football.
0: <laughs> Most of the arguments that people make for the development of football can either be addressed through long-distance running, which it takes an exacting toll, or a team sport like basketball. Yeah. That's true. I mean...
2: Basketball you know, would definitely be my pick.
0: Height. Height matters. <laughs>
1: I mean, my kids, if I had boys, they would be bad at whatever sport they chose. So, like, that doesn't matter. And so I would definitely steer them toward a sport that is a lot less likely to cause chronic brain injury.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely like the idea of some sort of team sport culture in a, ta- in a school, in a town. I wouldn't want to lose that. Chess,
1: chess, chess,
2: <laughs> chess. It should right. definitely be chess. Mike, thank you. Welcome. Mike Peska of The Gist, everybody. Okay, our advertiser this week is Hulu Plus. Hulu Plus! If you guys are anything like me, you need to watch some TV to unwind after the bedtime routine with your kids. Then you will love Hulu Plus, the on-demand streaming video service. You've probably tried regular Hulu on your computer, but Hulu Plus is so much more. It works on your computer, but also on your smart TV, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, and pretty much any streaming device that you already own. You can watch shows on your phone or on your iPad and on your own schedule wherever you are, on the subway commuting to work, During your lunch break or on the couch, will your dear children keep coming out of their bedroom for just one more thing? Hulu Plus has a great library of shows, including all 17 seasons of South Park and all eight seasons of The Cosby Show, which we celebrated on Slate this week. Because why, Dan?
1: Because it's the 30th anniversary of the very first episode.
2: 30th anniversary of The Cosby Show. I would love to go back and watch all of those. Hulu Plus also offers a ton of foreign shows and original programming like The Hot Wives of Orlando, a parody of The Real Housewives starring Kristen Schaal. Also, this cannot be emphasized enough, parents, kids' shows on Hulu Plus do not have any ads. So your children can watch their favorite shows or you can introduce them to your favorite kids' shows all without anyone trying to sell them anything, which means a tiny bit less of them bugging you to buy them stuff. Hulu Plus is only $7.99 a month, but you guys, our listeners, can get a two-week free trial when you go to HuluPlus.com slash fighting. Uh, The regular trial is one week free, so this is getting you an extra week. Please make sure you use Hulu Plus h-u-l-u-p-l-u-s dot com slash fighting so you get an extended free trial and so they know that we sent you. That's huluplus.com slash fighting. Okay, on to our listener call. Each week we take a call and question from a listener and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at four two four two five five seven eight three three. That's four two four two five five rude which is what Dan was when he thought he triumphed only to... Pawn off parenting to his wife. Yep. Yep. Uh, Ask us anything and we will do our best to answer. Today we have a call from Caitlin in Oakland, California. Hi, Allison and Dan. This is Caitlin from Oakland,
3: California. I'm a first-time mom with a six-month-old boy, and Allison's parenting fail last week about her kids being sexist really resonated with me. It's one of my biggest parenting fears. Even though my husband is a committed feminist, and I, like Allison, like to think of myself as a smart, not-lame girl with a cool job. At home, we tend to exhibit embarrassingly traditional gender roles, by preference. But still, I mean, I sewed curtains for the baby's room, he stalled the new, installed the new dishwasher, you get it. Allison, your attempt to introduce your boys to books by female authors got me thinking that it's not just the author's gender that's important, but the characters themselves. I've been noticing, even in the baby books that we read, how many of the main characters are male, especially when it comes to animal characters and inanimate objects. As our baby gets older, I want to make sure that we are reading stories with strong, intelligent, creative, inquisitive, and fun female heroes. I would love to know from both of you if you have recommendations of books for kids of all ages with female characters in that mold. Thanks so much, you guys.
1: That is a great question. I have so many recommendations. Um, So once I heard this call, I scoured our shelves uh, in our house. Um, I scoured my memory. But I also um, asked my kids' awesome school librarian at Jamestown Elementary, Amy Blaine. Um, She tweets at Classic Six Books, and she is very, very smart uh, and encyclopedically knowledgeable about kids' books. And here are some suggestions from both of us. Um, All right, picture books. Um, So, generally for kids a little bit older than your baby, but not that much older. And for this, we've got four nonfiction picture books. So, a lot of great you know fiction picture books for kids with female characters but nonfiction picture books are a great way to introduce kids to history and to a lot of the great women throughout history so there's uh here comes the girl scouts by shauna cory which is the beautifully illustrated story of daisy gordon lowe who's the founder of american girl scouts uh there's what to do about alice by barbara curley which is about troublemaking young alice roosevelt at loose in the white house there's Heart on Fire by Anne Malaspina, which is about an incident in the 1800s in which Susan B. Anthony was arrested for trying to vote for president. Uh, and there's Amelia and Eleanor Go for a Ride by Pam Munoz Ryan, which is the true story of how one time uh, Amelia Earhart was visiting the White House and Eleanor Roosevelt was like, this dinner is boring, please take me up in your plane, and they flew to Baltimore. All right. For young readers, um, so these are not picture books. These are books with uh, longer sentences, longer words, really good for first graders, second graders, third graders, fourth graders um, who are just getting into reading. We have Lois Lowry's Goonie Bird Green series, which is about a wild and crazy second and third grader um, who gets in a lot of trouble. There's Clementine by Sarah Pennypacker and all the Clementine follow-ups, which are great, fun, early reader books um, for kids who want to see themselves reflected in a slightly offbeat second grader. Um, And two books that I think help with your problem a little bit specifically about animals. It is true that animals and kids' books are often boys. It's like as default, kids see them as boys, and parents do too. But Kate DiCamillo's Mercy Watson series uh, has a uh, lovely, attractive, hilarious girl pig at its center, and uh, Chrysanthemum by Kevin Henkes is the book uh, is a book about a girl mouse who is driven crazy by her uncommon first name. Then for middle grade readers, which is uh, the kind of books that Lyra is reading now, there are zillions and zillions of great books with plucky, hilarious, adventurous, uh, inquisitive heroes who are girls. I really like the Amelia Rules series by Jimmy Gownley, which is a series of comic books featuring a fourth grader um, at war with her parents sometimes, but also uh, at war with her neighbors. There's The Girl with the Silver Eyes by Willow Davis Roberts, which is a great sort of supernatural tale about a girl who finds out she's been the subject of some kind of interesting government medical experiments. The Evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly, uh, which is a great story about a girl who's super into science in the 19th century. And One Crazy Summer by Rita Williams Garcia, a great story about a family of color and the girl at its center. I highly recommend all these books. Thanks to Amy Blaine at Classic Six Books for many of her recommendations as well.
2: Uh, that is an awesome list, and we're going to put that up for sure on Slate. So listeners that maybe only listen to the podcast on your phones but don't actually go look at the copy on Slate.com, go.
1: <laughs> Even if you were driving while listening to us, I, 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 <laughs> I understand that you wrote all these down while driving. <laughs> all right. On to our next topic, which is about parenting ambivalence. So do you, listener, do you remember the moment that you decided yes— I want to have a kid. If you're one of our many child-free listeners is your biological clock ticking? Are you trying are you thinking, "God, I want to have a kid." That's why I'm listening to these jerks talk about their kids. Although even studies show no evidence for an actual biological imperative re- to reproduce. But there is a common perception that the emotional pull to have kids is totally binary. Even either you're a person who wants kids and wants them now or you're a person who doesn't view yourself as a parent. But if you're a no now, well, maybe you'll turn into a, a yes later. But as Anne Friedman wrote in an interesting piece in The Cut this week, what if you just don't know if you want kids? Yes and no aren't the only options. As many as 45% of respondents in a recent academic study identified their feelings towards pregnancy and parenthood as neither yes nor no, but as ambivalent. And in fact, that's where a lot of people in their 20s and 30s feel exactly that way. They're just not sure. Now, as Amanda Marcotte noted in Double X, these people happen to be less likely to use birth control. Often they say they're not trying, but they're not not trying either, so let's just see what happens. Often what happens is a baby. But two recent essays explore that ambivalence from the point of view of women who seem much more likely to not have kids. In Dame Magazine, Kate Harding writes about how her ambivalence turned into an outright no when she had to make a decision on how to treat a large uterine fibroid. And in the beautiful and complicated essay, Difference Maker, in The New Yorker from her new book, Megan Daum writes about how she always knew she didn't want to have kids, but that no turned a little bit more ambivalent when it turned out her husband really did want them. The essay is about a lot more than that, too. You should definitely read it. But we get that question a lot. How do you know when it's the right time in your life to have that first kid or if you should have kids at all? How do you know? Allison, did you guys just know?
2: No. Uh, I think I think it is probably almost entirely a myth that anyone is like at least in terms of timing that anyone is like now I am ready to have children now I am ready to give up my independence now I am ready to no longer sleep in now I am ready to give myself over to a baby now I'm ready to gain 40 pounds like I don't think any I think very few people actually feel that way I think I had a vague sense that ultimately I wanted children in some form. Maybe not baby children or toddler children or even,
1: you know... Or even human children.
2: Adolescent children. But, like, as I saw myself... I guess I saw myself older with uh, grandchildren. (laughs) Um, And so to get there required having children. Uh, I don't think we ever sort of had a moment my husband john and i ever had a moment where we were like now it's time we had been married five years and we just stopped using birth control and you know we were lucky that we didn't have to pay too much attention to cycles and really sort of say all right we're trying to have a child and and work at it um because it just happened but no there was never like a moment that i was like i want a baby and i want one now how about you guys
1: there we definitely were of the type that you say doesn't exist, where we were like, "Oh, yes,
2: <laughs> shit, already, you
1: proven he, wrong." Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, one example does not prove anyone wrong, but the, and and we may or may not be representative of anything. But we definitely were like, oh, yes, now it is time. Now we want kids. And we were lucky as a couple and that that time came at basically the same time for both of us. It wasn't like we – it wasn't like one person was on the fence and the other person was pushing them one way or the other. We just were both like, all right, we want kids. Um, But now it is time.
2: Like now it is time because we are 30 or now it is time because we have this feeling inside that we – it was, it was sort on. of the
1: feeling and sort of like, well, we've had our dog four years and we haven't killed her. So obviously we can, we can handle it. I don't know. It's, so it's a great question about when should I do this. And what, here's what I tell people when they, when they ask me this question or even sometimes if they haven't asked me at all. I say if you feel ambivalent about having a kid, don't have a kid because the world certainly does not need more kids right this exact second. Kids upend your life so totally and completely that the only really good reason to have one is that you absolutely know that that is what you want right but now. But who
2: absolutely knows that?
1: Who we knows that? Nobody. Knew.
2: Well, but I don't know what you knew. I mean, I guess you, nobody who doesn't have children knows what it's going to be like to have children, right?
1: Like no, you can't know, know w- that that's that the experience
2: they, that you that that you want to have and that will be, you know, Part of what makes you happy.
1: <laughs> well, I guess what I'm saying is is that the your desire to have a child as part of your life overwhelms any anxiety you feel about how it will change it. You know, because here's why. And plenty of ambivalent people do have kids and they turn into great parents. Plenty of ambivalent people don't have kids and then later they regret it. But I still think that like the best course of action if you're not sure is just to, is don't have the kid right now because you can still have a kid later. Even if you get old, you can still adopt a kid later. Parents of adopted kids love their kids just as much as parents of biological kids. So I just feel like the main stressor, I feel like, for almost everyone is, what if I get too old? Or what if I regret it later? But there's always a time in your life where if you are like, what I want right now is a kid, where you can add a kid. I mean, maybe not when you're 98. But that is a thing that people can do. That can happen in your life. And so... I feel like the net gain to earth from people who are just not sure not introducing more people onto the earth is greater than the net loss of how great those kids might have been.
2: Yeah, I mean I guess I agree with you. I'm not really concerned about earth. I mean I guess in the abstract I am, but I feel like these are these are
1: <laughs> these are exclusive. <laughs> Benedict doesn't care about earth. <laughs>
2: I just mean that these are, you know, decisions that people although sometimes the you know people don't have kids because they think it's bad for, you know, we don't need we don't the population growth but the environment, but I think generally it's a much more personal decision than that and I'm certainly obviously people who don't want to have kids shouldn't have kids, people who are unsure, I suppose if they're that unsure then you're right, that's the right answer. You know, this Megan Dom essay in the in the New Yorker is incredibly sad and she talks about She names this thing called the central sadness, which is uh, basically when after she was married for a bit, they decided to stop using birth control. They didn't say we're going to have kids, but we're going to not prevent ourselves from having kids. She got pregnant and she had a miscarriage. And after that miscarriage, ultimately, she decided, no, I don't want to do this again. And then she talks about after that living with this thing that she calls the central sadness and She tries to fill it (laughs) by um, becoming an advocate for foster kids and then later even contemplating fostering, taking foster kids in herself. And I can't help but think reading that piece, although I'm in no way, you know, judging her decisions at all, but that the central sadness is the, the child that's missing.
1: I don't think that that's the message of that piece. I don't think the central sadness is about... Is really actually about a kid at all. I mean, as she says at the end of the piece, I tricked myself into believing that trying to help these kids – she's talking about the kids she advocates for – would put the central sadness on permanent hiatus, that my husband and I could find peace, not just peace but real fulfillment in our life together. Instead, we continued to puzzle over the same unanswerable questions. Perhaps it wasn't even sadness we were feeling but simply the dull ache of aging – maybe children don't save their parents from this ache as much as distract from it. And maybe creating a diversion from aging is in fact much of the point of parenting. To me, this is not saying that the kid is what is causing the central sadness. It is life. It's Life itself causes this central sadness. Some people fill that central sadness with a child, and that works for some people. But I'm not convinced from reading this essay that the addition of a child to her life would fill that central sadness for Megan Daum. I think the point is that we all find those things. Some of us never find those things, but that putting the wrong thing in that place doesn't make things better.
2: Maybe not feel the central sadness, but like she says, distract from the central sadness, which isn't such a bad thing. I mean, that's but not a reason to have a kid. Is that a, a great kid.
1: reason? Yeah. Is that a reason to bring a kid into the world?
2: No, it's not know. a reason to bring a kid into the world, But but I think it's true that those of us who have children spend our 30s and our 40s and our early 50s not reflect i mean plenty of parents are incredibly sad and dissatisfied about their lives but maybe but maybe it's a good thing that like thinking about these other people make us not think about all of these you know heavier questions uh and i i don't know i mean i think that's actually like a real benefit (laughs) of yeah I, i
1: i agree i agree that a real benefit of having children is that it forces you to think about someone besides yourself for many of us for like the first time in our goddamn selfish lives. And so I do agree that that's a real benefit. But nevertheless, I still maintain that it's worth waiting, that if you are not sure, wait and see what happens. Maybe that means that you stop using birth control and see what happens. Maybe it means that you keep using birth control and you see how you feel in a year or two years. I mean, it's worth noting that the later you have a kid, the better shot that kid has, right? You're more secure in your career. You have more money. You're more experienced. You have a better support network in your community, probably, in order to help raise that kid. So waiting is never a bad idea, I don't think. I agree with
2: you. Although for women, I mean, this is stating the obvious, but like you said, you can always adopt. But for people who potentially want to have biological children, it obviously gets harder the longer you wait.
1: Yes, though, prioritizing biological children suggests that there's something else at play right other than just the desire to have someone in your life who you raise and care about it suggests that you're then you have a whole separate set of issues you're considering whether it's about your relationship with your partner or your desire to spread forth the family line or whatever but if at at its base i think the act of raising a child doesn't have anything to do with whether that child comes from your 38-year-old body or someone else's body and you are the one who raises it like i think that I feel like you ought to be able to divorce that from the equation. Obviously easy for me to say. My body never makes children. So, but still, that's how I feel.
2: What do you think about this little sort of boom of essays? I mean, in Slate a couple of years ago, we actually ran a bunch of essays in Double X about women who, you know, cho- are choosing to be childless or the various reasons that women are childless. But it definitely seems like right now this is it's coming up again that there there's a lot of writing on this topic and it's I think, you know, it's uh, a good thing. It's, it's some, I think It's a great thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious what, like, what do you think is inspiring it now?
1: I do think that there, I think that a lot of people feel really frustrated that it is 2014, but yet we still live in a culture uh, that, that still views having a kid as like the ne plus ultra <laughs> of what a human being can do. And I think that's really frustrating for people who don't feel that urge, who, can't have kids, who have chosen not to have kids for economic reasons or other reasons. I think that that is like maddening. I would imagine, especially for women, that it would be maddening to live in this world where even, you know, even like fucking CEOs of companies are like, my greatest accomplishment is my children. Like that would be maddening. I really love my kids and I view raising my kids as an important part of my life. But that does not make my life experience better or more fulfilled than a person who didn't have kids. and and But yet the culture tells us that. And so I sort of view these essays as a deliberate pushback against that notion, as people sort of standing up for the, the notion that a childless life or, or a child-free life, as you could also term it, is a totally legitimate and appropriate way to be. It's a way for a person to live their life that is not less than my life just because I have two kids.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think it's incredible. I mean, the reason that we're hearing so much about it now is that feminism has essentially taken over pop culture. and Yeah.
1: And there's is, there's is lady blogs as far as the eye can see. So. Right.
2: I do want to say, though, that line that you just said about, um, you know, CEOs of companies saying their greatest achievement are their children. And Ann Friedman in her essay kind of used that to, you know, scoffed at that. I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, honestly, like... I will never be I, a CEO of anything, but if I ever were <laughs> to become one, <laughs> ha ha ha! I guess I would have to have a, I would have my own mail opener. First of all, that would be the first person I'd hire. Right, uh, right. But I, you know, I could see still feeling like my children were my greatest accomplishment. I don't think it's a retrograde thing to feel. I don't think
1: it's a retrograde on any when any one individual person says it, but when it's the message that you hear over and over and over again, right? It has to be creating. It has to be totally grating.
2: I'm sure it's grating, but I also think it can be true.
1: Yes, and also beneficial. It's beneficial in other ways. Obviously, when the CEO of a company says, my children are important, it sends a message to everyone in the company about the importance of family, blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying that these essays feel like a pushback to me to, that. Against, yeah. to this, to this entire culture of which our parenting podcast is an important, <laughs> crucial part of the parenting industrial complex. All right, Listeners. Tell us how you feel about this. Should ambivalence be a disqualifier? Am I just a jerk? When did you? Did you know? Please, if all of you just knew that it was time to have a baby, write in and tell Allison that she's wrong. Please email us at at slate.com. Once again, that's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. All right. Recommendations. Allison, what are you recommending this week? I have two unrelated recommendations.
2: One is that MIT just hosted a Make the Breast Pump Not Suck Hackathon where people came for, I think, 48 hours or 72 hours and tried to improve the breast pump. Uh, the first prize went to a team of two who developed a, like, tool belt uh, breast pump, which the, the, in the video that I watched for it, they say, like, you can be pumping on the way to work. You can be pumping in your car. You can be pumping while exercising, which I don't know if I would have wanted to do that. but While exercising? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Cool. Uh, but I think it's a good thing that people are thinking about this and trying to improve the dreaded breast pump. So I guess I rec- I'm recommending that ingenuity be focused on improving the breast pump. But then also I want to recommend, again, unrelated, uh, this Nick Bilton New York Times piece from a couple of weeks ago called Steve Jobs was a low-tech parent. Did you read this?
1: I did not. Please tell me about it.
2: It's maddening. I mean, I guess it's not surprising, (laughs) but it's basically him talking about how By the way, all of the tech giants that I've interviewed over the years, including Steve Jobs, including Chris Anderson, including Evan Williams, the founder of Twitter and Medium, uh, severely limit their kids' screen time or don't even let their kids have iPads. I think that's Evan Williams, the founder of Twitter. They don't let their kids have iPads. They just have hundreds of books, (laughs) real ones, not on Kindles. So... You know, it's not like I'm ever telling my kids, sure, you can watch another show because I bet Steve Jobs let him let his kids do that back in the day. But it'll make you think.
1: Yep, Yeah. I wonder if any of those mega million dollar CEOs had help with their children
2: Hmm. so that
1: they didn't have to resort to make those decisions. (laughs) That's
2: true. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, All right. Those are good recommendations. Thanks. Mine is a uh, middle grade adventure book series. Called The Expeditioners. It's by S.S. Taylor and illustrated by Catherine Roy. I didn't recommend this before in answer to our listener call because the narrator of this series is a boy, but there are also a bunch of really great uh, girl characters. But it is uh, a series set in a sort of steampunk alternate United States. Um, And it stars three orphaned kids. They are the children of a famous explorer. They are following the clues that their dad left them before he disappeared. It is very funny. It's very exciting. The illustrations are great. Um, It's just a little bit weird and unlikely, I think, in ways that smart kids will really enjoy. The first book is called The Expeditioners and the Treasure of Drowned Man's Canyon. And the second one just came out this week. And it is called The Expeditioners and the Secret of King Triton's Lair. Uh, Once again, it's by S.S. Taylor. And it's published by McSweeney's McMullins. And they are really fun. I recommend them.
2: That sounds great. Uh, okay, that's our show. Please email us at at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, about football, and about parenting ambivalence, uh, and with suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions. 424-255-7833. We want to hear from you. Thanks to Ann Hepperman for producing today's show. Thanks to... Intern Courtney Duckworth for helping us with research. Thanks to Andy Bowers.
1: Apparently an acute bronchial infection. Yeah, really, Courtney.
2: She was like, I'm just out of urgent care. I'll get you the links that you need. (laughs) We're like, what? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Thanks to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate podcasts. Thanks to Mike Pesca of The Gist. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening.